I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive, a show for and about grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives along the Wasatch Front. Community co-host Rashawn Leak will be back next week as I'm going to share with you an interview recorded before the winter break with Refugees International. They've had this Voices from the Border series for the last two years, talking with advocates and legal eagles about what's going on and what our government is doing in our name. Tonight, Refugees International's report that analyzes the impact of enforcement policies and barriers to accessing work, housing, and services in Tijuana during the pandemic on migrants and asylum seekers, especially those who are non-Spanish speaking and Black. Dr. Yale Shecker will join us in a bit. But first, I wanted to get started with Dr. Angela Dunn of the Salt Lake County Health Department. Earlier today, she issued a formal public health advisory regarding the record-breaking transmission of the SARS-CoV-2 Omicron variant. The advisory, in effect through the end of this month, strongly encourages people who live and work in Salt Lake County to engage in several precautions known to be effective in preventing the spread of COVID. I got her on Zoom this afternoon to find out more. Dr. Dunn, what did you ask folks to do today in Salt Lake County? The tried and true public health measures are so important right now, given the beginning of our Omicron surge. I mean, we're going to have record-breaking cases again today, over 2,000 in Salt Lake County. So people need to wear masks when they're in public and inside, regardless of their vaccine status. Definitely get vaccinated and boosted. We know that if it's been greater than six months from your Pfizer or Moderna, your protection plummets. So you really need to get that booster. And then if you're unvaccinated or unboosted, just avoid large gatherings, whether inside or outside. So what data were you tracking that brought you to this? Tell us what's going on in uh, the data. So we have the fortune of learning from our states in the Midwest and on the East Coast. And throughout this pandemic, we're always a few weeks behind them. So looking at their data, when Omicron hits their jurisdiction, they've seen an increase of about 200% in cases, followed by about a 25% increase in hospitalization. And right now our hospitals are full. They can't handle another 25% increase in COVID hospitalizations. I mean, the University of Utah just announced that they're stopping elective surgeries. Um, So looking at the increase in rates, case rates coming, increase in hospitalizations to follow and are already full hospitals. We really need to do everything we can to protect our healthcare systems. Now, nearly two thirds of residents are not boosted. Almost a quarter are completely unvaccinated against COVID. Is that just in Salt Lake County or statewide? That is in Salt Lake County. We actually are a little better than the rest of the state. Um, So we do have additional protection that other counties in our state don't have, but it's still not enough to protect our hospitals against being overwhelmed. You say wear a mask, and in the notes that you sent out today in a press release, you talked about the higher quality masks like the KN95s or the KF94s. I haven't heard that number. Uh, So the quality of the mask is important here, too. Absolutely, especially if you're one of those people in the vulnerable population category and you're immunocompromised or if you're unvaccinated, definitely look for those KN95 masks. Also, if you are vaccinated and boosted, but you know, you're going um, to a concert or going into a crowded area or on a plane, definitely wear a higher quality mask. Now, the age has been lowered yet again under emergency status for folks to get vaccinated, correct? So how young are they saying folks can be to get this uh, vaccination? Sure. So the vaccination is still five plus, but what changed is the booster. So the FDA approved 12 to 15 year olds to get the boost dose. 
And we expect the CDC to formally approve that tomorrow. And we are ready at the Salt Lake County Health Department to start boosting 12 to 15-year-olds. Meanwhile, the Salt Lake County Health Department still engaged in testing and vaccination. What is the easiest way to get into that pipeline? So this is our shot.com or saltlakehealth.org will give people the list of where we are for both testing and vaccination. I will say that vaccinations, we have walk-in free appointments all Saturday and Sunday at our South Redwood Public Health Center in West Jordan and Government Center in Salt Lake City. And those are open nine to five Saturday and Sunday. um, And there's no wait for those vaccination sites. So that's where, where I would go. For those of us that are vaccinated, that are boosted, we should still be taking these precautions. In fact, you talk about the infectious rate of folks who test positive. Can you just go over those those things to keep in mind um, when the CDC guidance changes as it just did to this five-day? Oh, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Um, so the CDC recently released new guidance saying that if you've been infected with COVID, you can be released from isolation after five days as long as you wear a mask for an additional five days. What I would like people to really understand is that nothing changed in the science here. The virus, you can still be infectious 10 to 14 days after your first positive test. The CDC did these changes to allow more people to go to work so that our economy wouldn't collapse and to keep the country open, as they put it. So I still want people to understand the risk of leaving your house after five days after you've been infected. Wearing a mask is so essential to preventing additional spread to those who are who are vulnerable to COVID-19. So, Dr. Dunn, I guess that's got to be kind of hard to swallow as a doctor, as an epidemiologist, when these guidance, it changes. And you're here saying, you know, 10 to 14 days after. So how do you reconcile that? I have a pit in my stomach about these new <laughs> guidelines and, and how they will play out with us being at the beginning of our Omicron surge and kids going back to school right now. And 70% of our five to 11 year olds are unvaccinated. Um, we will certainly see additional spread and additional hospitalization. So, um, you know, this is what we've been playing the entire pandemic is that balance of protecting lives with protecting livelihoods. Um, so I just, I want to urge everybody to really get vaccinated and boosted. That's going to be the number one way to protect yourself and your loved ones. And then wear a mask in public until we get to really high numbers of vaccinations. Dr. Angela Dunn of the Salt Lake County Health Department checked tonight's show notes for a link to get tested, to get vaccinated, and please do your part to beat back this latest surge of COVID. When we come back, Dr. Yale Shecker of Refugees International will join us and share some of the conversation the nonprofit had late last year in its Voices from the Border series, this time around refugee and migrant communities in Tijuana during the pandemic. To get us from here to there off her Servant of Love album, it's Patty Griffin, There Isn't One Way, on KRCL 90.9. Make a difference in our community by working or volunteering at one of the many organizations helping folks transition out of homelessness. Volunteers of America Utah, The Road Home, and Utah Community Action are currently hiring more than 100 paid positions, including 45 related to overflow shelter programs. Details about jobs and volunteering available on their websites. Downsizing your car collection or simply tired of looking at that project car sitting in the back of your driveway in pieces? Either way, consider donating it to KRCL. 
and our friends at Cars Inc. will take it from there. No hassles, no fees. You get a tax receipt, and KRCL gets a donation. But best of all, the music you love never stops. Visit the support tab at krcl.org for more information and how to donate. Thanks, y'all. Welcome back to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock tonight, Democracy Now!, followed by Vagabond Radio with Barbie, Connor's Late Night Lowdown at 10.30, and Chovy's Super Sounds at 1 a.m. John Florence starts a brand new day each and every weekday at 6 a.m., and you can catch the last two weeks of any show. Listen on demand online at krcl.org. Before the winter break, I had the chance to record an interview with Dr. Yael Shaker, Senior U.S. Advocate for Refugees International. And late last year, they released their final edition in their series, Voices from the Border. Tonight, we'll share some of the webinar they had, talking about refugee and migrant communities in Tijuana during the pandemic. But first, a bit of context with Dr. Shaker. Hi, doctor. Welcome back to Radioactive. Thanks so much for having me. Can you give us your your top-line analysis of what this report contains and part of what we're about to share? Sure. It's based on a survey and several follow-up focus group conversations with um, 335 um, migrants and asylum seekers in Tijuana during the pandemic. Um, They were done um, in late 2020. Um, and some of the uh, migrants um, and asylum seekers who were surveyed and interviewed um, f- figured and fe- were featured in our um, webinar. Um, it really describes what the experience of living in Tijuana for migrants was like during the pandemic, um, and especially focuses on the barriers to accessing health services and documents. Um, and other needed you know, shelter, basically paying rent, um, unemployment, um, and some security concerns, um, especially in relationship to Mexican officials and police in Tijuana, and especially the experience of Black migrants. Um, so the, the survey um, was of, um, as I said, 335 folks um, who received some assistance from Espacio Migrante, which is one of the organizations that authored the report. Um, uh, And they collected information about people. They provided basically cards for food and and help paying rent. Um, And they broke that. But but what they did that's different from many other um, organizations is really focus on the experience of Black migrants, which, um, you know, have really been sort of left out of discussions of migration um, in Tijuana. Um, There's a the largest um, subgroup within the survey were Haitians, 141 Haitian migrants um, and asylum seekers were um, surveyed. And then um, I think it was almost 90 or 100, I think it was 100 Africans, people from 13 African countries, many from Ghana, um, who have been living in Tijuana. And then the rest were Central Americans and folks from South America, including Venezuelans and others. Um, And what's interesting is that although there are barriers for everybody um, in terms of unemployment, uh, paying the rent, access to health care, as we mentioned, um, enrolling children in school, um, black migrants and those who don't speak Spanish have a harder time with it. Uh, another very important finding with our of our survey is of, of the report, excuse me, is that um, 
you know, the documents that um, migrants and asylum seekers receive in by the Mexican authorities run the gamut. And it's actually very hard for people to pay for documents to regularize their status, to be able to get um, um, basically work, because depending on what documents you have uh, affects whether or not you're able to get employment. Um, and, and the final thing that I think is really, really the biggest takeaway from the whole report is that, you know, because of the militarization of enforcement, um, both uh, mostly on the Mexican side, but also then the closed border uh, on the U.S. side, um, especially um, the metering policy that existed um, in 2018, the Remain in Mexico policy that followed during the Trump administration, the Title 42 border closure policy, which has closed the border during the pandemic and led to expulsions of people back in Tijuana. We've got a bottleneck of folks living in Tijuana. Tijuana is sort of becoming both a transit city and a place where, where migrants are spending a lot more time. Uh, and what the, the major call in the recommendations of the report is for the uh, local officials uh, in Mexico to really understand what that means. That that means that their public institutions need to um, stop discriminating based on race, that documents need to be provided for these folks who are living in Tijuana for long periods. One of the most interesting things, and one of the women um, actually featured in the video had a child born in Tijuana because people are staying longer times. They have children who are Mexican born and they want to enroll them in schools. Um, in, under Mexican law, if you're a parent of a child who was born in Mexico, you are entitled to permanent residency. But that is very hard for some uh, Haitian families to get, uh, for some um, Central American families to get, just because of the the documentary, the the sort of problems with getting documents um, uh, in 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 Tijuana. So there are a lot of issues we discuss, and we really also call for. Um, the you know the, the the reopening of the port of entry to asylum seekers, the access to asylum in the United States, and so there there are many many different recommendations, but the main focus is on this this sort of bottlenecking in Tijuana, which have kept migrants there and for longer periods, the diversity of migrant experience, the special barriers and discrimination that that Black migrants face in, in Tijuana, and how the pandemic has sort of exacerbated uh, many of the pre existing trends. Thank you, Dr. Shecker. Let's share some of the webinar held in December on this topic. And we're going to pick up with you introducing the first panelist. Paulina Olvera-Cañez is the executive director of Espacio Migrant and is a master's degree candidate at um, UCSD, focusing on the experiences of Haitian and African migrants in Baja, California. And the question I have for you, Paulina, to kick us off is, um, what were some of the issues you saw on the ground facing migrant communities at the start of the pandemic? Um, how did this shape Espacio Migrante's work? And how did you go about conducting the survey and focus groups that you write about in the report? Thank you so much, Jael. And thank you to the team of Refugees International for all their support in making this report a reality. Uh, we're very excited. We have been working since the beginning of the pandemic um, and now this year writing the report. So we're really honored to be able to present it. Uh, so first, Espacio Migrante is a, has a shelter for migrant families and we have a community center where we serve 
migrant community that doesn't live in shelters or that live um, throughout the city. And um, before the pandemic started, uh, many migrants came to Espacio Migrante to look for different services and information um, to for their um, inclusion in the city so they could access different um, programs. For example, we have a legal clinic uh, coordinator by, by Tania Garcia, who is here. She uh, provides legal services to migrants. We have Spanish classes, uh, community workshops. But in the beginning of the pandemic, um, these people that, that we know in the community, they started coming because they were starting to lose their jobs and they were reaching out to us uh, for humanitarian support. So um, these are people that some of them had been either on the asylum waiting list. Uh, so this means that they had been in Tijuana for a few months. Uh, as part of this population was also in the MPP or Remain in Mexico program. Many of them had been in Tijuana for over a year. Or also in the case of the Haitian community, many of them had been waiting in Tijuana since the beginning of the Trump administration. And so these are migrants that were living throughout the city, renting, uh, working, and uh, renting a, an apartment. Um, and so when the pandemic hit, the, these are the first people that were really affected because they didn't have a support ne network um, that they would have if they were in a shelter, for example. So they started reaching out to us asking if we had any food, if we could support them to pay the rent for one more month. And so we saw that something was changing because these the services that we were used to giving uh, were not um, emergency services like we saw uh, there was a need at that moment. So um, this is when we started a, a food program um, and it, it's a program uh, of cash assistance where we are able to give uh, each migrant or, my, or each family a card that they can use to buy the main necessities for them. So this can be food, uh, medicine, or the things that they need the most. Um, and we saw that this was a, a good program because it gives uh, people the autonomy to buy whatever is most urgent for them. Um, but we also started seeing um, other struggles that this community had. So this is when we started a survey. Um, it was a way to identify who needed this help, but also allowed us to identify um, other needs that they had. So we would give them this card, but then we could also connect them maybe to a local clinic or maybe follow up on, on, on the case to support them so their children could go to school in Tijuana. So this was a way for us to uh, identify these needs, um, but also so they could choose how they, how they needed to spend um, th that resource. And uh, some of the things we also found is that, and I think my, my colleagues can uh, speak more about this, uh, but we found that uh, part of the Haitian community and also most Africans com community that is in Tijuana, they are not living in shelters. And the few programs that uh, were available during the pandemic by the government or international organizations had specific profiles that excluded these migrants. This is why we um, decided to intentionally reach out to this community and um, 
this, this of course changed the work of Espacio Migrante because we needed to contact with Haitian Bridge Alliance and with other organizations that could give us the, the tools in regards to language access, in regards to giving them information in their own language. Um, and like my colleagues, I'm sure they will go deeper into this, but we saw different needs like besides food, housing, but also access to healthcare was a, a very hard thing for the migrant community uh, during this period. And when it comes to African and Haitian migrants who many of them don't speak Spanish, um, it became a, a barrier for them to access things like healthcare. Uh, but many times, even uh, another one of these barriers was documentation. Um, but we also saw that um, racial discrimination was another component because even in cases when migrants had the legal status in Mexico, um, they might get turned down to access healthcare. So for us, uh, it was two responses, the humanitarian response to answer to this urgent need but um, what this report, what, what these surveys and the focus groups that we were able to do highlighted is that migrants need to be able to access rights in Tijuana. And we have seen that uh, the local authorities, institutions still have a vision of immigration as being uh, a population that is passing through that just needs shelter and that is staying for a few days in Tijuana. And but this is not the reality anymore. As the US policies at the border continue to become harder, this means that people are staying for longer in cities like Tijuana. Uh, it, our city has become like a large waiting room for many of these families, but it might also become uh, a destination for them if they are not able to go to the US. So this means that institutions need to recognize the rights of migrants to be able to access basic things like food, not, not face discrimination when they try to rent a, a home, when they try to access healthcare. Um, and part of this has been a, a learning experience working together also with Haitian Bridge Alliance. And uh, now our focus is um, working for food justice, access to rights and language justice as well. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um... And I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to the next question that will talk a little bit more about the the how the research was done and the surveys and the focus groups that Paulina mentioned. So the next question is for uh, Domila Pazzini, um, who's a board member of Espacio Migrante and is working on her PhD in social sciences um, at the State University of Capinas in Brazil, focuses focusing on the mobility of of Haitians who have left there. Uh, Domila, can you discuss some of the most important and interesting findings from the survey data um, and, and talk a little bit about how you went about um, collecting and analyzing that data? Well, uh, first of all, I want to, I'm happy to be here talking about our research. Between April and June, Espacio Migrante with Haitian Readers, I produced, uh, conducted fun service with 335 Central American, Haitian, and African migrants and, and asylum seekers to access their needs and approve them for a cash assistance program uh, run by the two organizations, like Paulina said. 
uh, we provided qualified applicants with prepared cares. They used to purchase food, medicine, and other essential items. So the initial serve among uh, three and thirty-five, three hundred and thirty-five uh, people. Of those, the 92 were Spanish speakers from Latin America and Caribbean. 100 people were from uh, 13 uh, African countries. And 141 people were from IT. Uh, and two were speak, uh, English speakers from Jamaica. The survey includes questions about language, family composition, immigration status, inquiry about access to education, housing, employment, and healthcare. The survey, the survey also included open-ended question about migration plans and community and fam familial needs. Uh, we, when we had contact with the survey material, we had a, a first large scale scale contact with the situation of migrants in Tijuana. So to make it easier to interpret it, uh, we divided the survey into uh, general themes and it was based on the that we created the, the questions uh, for the focus groups. So some of uh, the things that we found for example, related to employment, uh, less than 10% uh, of Haitians and Africans migrants who were employed during the, the half of the pandemic. Um, a major of them worked in the formal uh, market and therefore were employed in business and industries considered essentials of the two, at 22% of Central America, Central Americans employed during quarantine, almost half worked independently or off the books. Very few migrants uh, were able to work from home. Uh, Haitians at 11%, uh, Haitians. Uh, at 19 and Central Americans at nine. About housing, uh, the vast majority of migrants in Tijuana do not live in shelters, like Paulina said. The average rents paid by those served uh, were very similar and all expressed a deep concern about paying rent. 7% of Africans, 96% of Haitians, and 97% of Latin and Central Americans said that COVID had made it too difficult to cover their uh, housing exp uh, expenses. Rent is a central concern partly because the majority of migrants uh, live downtown where they have easier access to the border and to transportation, but where uh, but where rents then uh, tend to be higher. Another significant group lives in the uh, cities eastern um, 
where rents tend to be less expensive. Most of those uh, lived with housemates who were not family members. Uh, these make the, the expensive be less than lived uh, alone. Uh, our survey also uh, our survey also showed that many migrants in the city of Sigas in Tijuana, uh, especially if they were black or did not speak Spanish, would not access needed healthcare. Black women, specifically, uh, if pregnant, suffer from uh, arthritis. Uh, this word, this word for their needs. In Tijuana, access to public health service decreased by 4% between 2015 and 2020, reaching only 74% uh, uh, of total population. Um, even though the migrant population is generally, generally young, a significant member suffered from a number of ailments among the most common were hypertension, gastrointestinal problems, and asthma. Uh, some had received the treatment while others could not do the lack of information regar regarding where to access care as well as information that suggests disparate treatment on the, uh, on the part of provides the basis of race. Central Americans in our survey were about twice as likely to be treated for illness in Tijuana than Africans or Haitians, which may be an indi uh, indication of access thanks to the language. Uh, when we were asked about the needs in the COVID context, about, uh, about what, what kind of help they were needing, most of them had to do uh, talking about uh, basic survival issues like housing and food or things related to it, a job and migration documents. Thank you so much. And I think you can tell from how much Domila had to say that there's a lot of rich data in the report. Um, I think that was a great um, summary of the major takeaways um, and the, um, one of the there we have some there's some interesting charts in the report on um, that gets into more like granular detail about you know what documents people had because it is a very complicated um, documentary scheme. I mean, I think what what I saw from you know the takeaway is a little bit like people were all over the map in terms of what kinds of documents they had, what was available to them. But I think as Domila said. Um, some of the most um, stark data had to do with um, the, con the, the concern about rent, the loss of employment, and the disparate way that um, Black migrants could access or could not access healthcare um, because of language and, 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 and barriers related to racism. So thank you, Domila, for all your hard work on the, on the statistics and the survey. 
And I'm going to turn it ne turn next to to April Mays, um, uh, who's the a treasurer of the board. Uh, uh, sorry, treasurer of the board of Haitian Bridge Alliance, and an associate professor of history at Pomona College in California. April, can you talk about these issues and stories and other important ones you learned about in the focus groups? Um, what are some of the challenges to documenting the experiences and treatment of uh, Black migrants and refugees in particular? And can you speak about what has changed about their experiences and treatment in Tijuana over the past few years? Thank you so much. Um, good afternoon. Muy buenas tardes, bonsoir tout le monde. Um, I'm very happy to be here. And as you can tell, this effort um, bringing us together for this report was bi-national. Um, Haitian Bridge Alliance is based out of California or Alta California, as I like to say. Um, Espacio Migrante is located in Tijuana and Baja California. And then our querida Domila is um, joining us all the way from Brazil. And so it's remarkable. It's not it's remarkable um, and something to just take note of how international um, the issues that we are talking about in the report and the presence of these migrants, um, how international it's become in the past few years. Um, there is There are now a number of studies about Haitian migrants in mainland Latin America available to audiences, and that scholarship is coming out of places like Brazil, increasingly uh, Chile, um, as well as Mexico itself, not to mention the United States, which has been home to a Haitian diaspora community for a long while. Um, so we are part of a much longer and expansive tradition of research and work and trying to understand uh, mobilities throughout the Americas. I'll start with actually the last two parts of the question um, posed here. Some of the challenges about documenting the treatment and experiences of black migrants and refugees in uh, particular, and what we think has changed over the past few years. Well, some of the challenges of documenting experiences and just capturing quantitatively, right, some of what's happening on the ground relates to a number of factors. One is that until most recently, right, um, this population is highly, was highly mobile. So someone who was in Tijuana five, four years ago may not be in Tijuana today. And so when you uh, conduct research into this population, you're really capturing, a sort, sort of taking a photograph in a moment of time. And that photograph that you took, you'll never be able to take it again because by the time you turn around to take another one, it's going to change. The main protagonists will, will not be there. There will be something, some institutions, some infrastructures, but the people themselves, you know, they come in and out. So that is one of the challenges is, is sort of the population itself um, and accessing that population. So because of what we know, about contemporary migration throughout the Americas, um, all of their attendant dangers, um, the ways in which migrants 
can be uh, exploited, abused, both by state actors and non-state actors at the same time, um, these are communities that do not trust and it's completely reasonable to understand why they would not have much trust and confidence in anybody. And so part of the work that I think the great work Espacio Migrante and Haitian Bridge of Alliance have done in Tijuana is to create bonds of, and cultivate bonds of trust between our organizations, our staff members and members of migrant, refugee and asylum seeking communities in order to then move forward to get information so that we can assess the needs of um, those communities as well. Um, another barrier, another uh, issue when it comes to documenting the experiences of Black migrants now, in particular, is the absence of quantitative information collected by the state um, about Black people in general. As some of you may know, in 2020, the Mexican state authorized, the Mexican government authorized a census that for the first time, probably since the 19th century, um, took into account Afro-descendancy so that the census itself counted for the first time, at least in the 20th and 21st centuries, people who understood themselves as being Mexicans of African descent. And Mexico is not the only Latin American country where this is true. Um, many Latin American countries do not make, do not distinguish um, racial groups, many more distinguish ethnic groups because of the question of, of how many indigenous communities, how many indigenous peoples, how many indigenous languages are still spoken may be of interest to the state, but this comes out of a longer history and trajectory, um, which actually has kind of a radical premise, which is to say, if we're no longer a colony, we're not going to, we're not going to go by what the colonial state did, was, which was to count every person, not, who was, not just who was white, who was black and who was indigenous, but everything in between, we're gonna take the, on the radical idea that we're all citizens of one nation. We are all Mexican, or we're all Cuban, or we're all Chilean. That's a pretty cool idea. But what it means is that it's very hard to make quantitative arguments about the differential impacts of state policy on different populations. We know those differential impacts exist because they exist in other places with similar populations that do count in those ways, but it's almost, it's virtually impossible to find that in quantitative information from the state, from state governments that have had a commitment to racelessness practices, to structural and institutional race, racelessness, right? And an idea of their nation as one people um, rather than um, in differentiated by race or ethnicity in these ways. So that presents a challenge to any researcher. So questions around how many X are being affected by Y, uh, some of this for, I think one of the unique uh, contributions of this report is that we're capturing numbers, some of these numbers for the first time um, coming out of Tijuana and out of the context of Baja California. The uh, other question, um, what might have changed about experiences and our perception, but again, hard to capture quantitatively, but somewhat qualitatively, we've captured some of this as you'll read in the report, is our argument that um, 
it seems that the generalized acceptance or in one, in one way, the perception of, of Haitian migrants in particular um, has changed since 2016 to the present. And we hypothesize that some of this has to do with the, that many poor people are staying or forced to stay and the ways in which this bottleneck that's being created because of Title 42, because of MPP and the strains that is placing on infrastructures in Tijuana and just the visibility now, right, of migrants in Tijuana, um, they're causing tensions and contradictions and discomfort and, uh, act, you know, some unwelcomeness, but also, you know, there is continued welcome of migrants in some sectors of Tijuana society. This is not a report at all that says everything is bad um, in Tijuana. And in fact, linking to the first part of the question, important story or surprising issue that comes out of the focus groups. You know, when we asked our focus group participants, what would you want either the Tijuana government to do or the state government to do or the US government to do? What I was really struck by was how um, in, the, in the responses to that question, um, migrants really saw that they had points of solidarity with Mexican society, that they understood that th their struggle is really against larger power structures, right? Legal systems, migra migration policies, the Trump administration <laughs> in particular, and that Mexicans were their neighbors, and that they saw them, that there were ways that they were, they were making the argument basically, hey, we have actually more in common. And maybe if we connected across our commonalities, we could work together to make some solutions happen. And I think the promise of that solidarity is, is really powerful and perhaps hopeful. And how, and, and now the question for organizations is, the ways that we might be able to capitalize on that. What are the potentials? What are the possibilities where elements of Tijuana society and this migrant society, this migrant population could actually come together in solidarity to create this new world and to demand new structures and more fair structures and more just structures. Um, and I'll say to close, um, to link with the videos, but also with what we found in the report that the costs of migration are so much, right? Um, there's the cost and money, the actual you know, expenditures that people have and how being forced to stay on the border adds to that cost, which then adds to a last point, which also became um, uh, part of our, our report and perhaps, not perhaps, but does deserve further explanation than our report could give it would be the emotional and mental stress costs of both what happens, what happens to people along the migrant journey and then the ways in which the stresses at being at the border and forced to remain in place, right? Having now to pay rent, um, having to pay for health services, navigating uh, unfamiliar systems in a language that may be your second or your third or your fourth, if you speak it, right? Um, 
with people who you're beginning to know as neighbors and that you're interacting with very often um, in sometimes conflictive ways, right? Um, this is all adding to the emotional and mental um, well-being of migrants. And so again, how we might attend to the ways, ways those stresses and traumas show up in those communities and community dynamics, interfamily dynamics, interpersonal dynamics and conflicts. I think this will be um, the future of migrant assistance um, for the next, for, you know, as when we talk about what the future of that looks like. And with that, thank you so much. Well, that was like the perfect setup for the next question, which is, um, uh, I'll ask Tanya um, Garcia, um, coordinator of the um, legal clinic at Espacio Migrante and a professor at um, Universidad Autonoma uh, in Baja, California. Um, so there's some new political leadership in charge uh, in Tijuana and Baja, California. Um, and what could they do to, to better uphold um, the rights of migrants and asylum seekers in Tijuana? And can you discuss kind of along the lines that that April talked about that solidarity and the sort of needs and, and recommendations that were coming out that migrants themselves were raising in the focus groups. Can you, can you discuss some of the recommendations in the report? Um, and especially those that, that, that were, that did come out of, of those focus groups. Yeah. Thank you, Gail, for the questions. And um, I'm also very happy to be here. We are finally launching this report and, and we are very happy about it. And yeah, since October, a new local administration, and then in November, a new state administration took office. And uh, from their election speeches, we heard uh, some proposals to better address the migratory phenomenon in the state and in the city. Um, and we really hope that this is a long-term project and not just a campaign promise as we've seen in some other administrations. And uh, now the job for these new administrations is to listen to migrants and to attend their needs. Um, one of the things that we've been saying a lot is that um, they do not have to start from scratch, like they do not have to um, kind of create or invent something new because there is a lot of work of organizations in the field as Haitian Breed Alliance and Espacio Migrante. And the ideal is to work together and strengthen those roots uh, for uh, right access, um, access to rights and promote those that are missing, right? Because there are a few and this has to be with um, how the personnel of these uh, offices are uh, doing their job. And so it is very important that authorities can guarantee the migrant, the refugee, and the asylum-seeking community access to their human rights in the city is not just talking about migration as a federal issue, but to talk about human rights. Uh, so while, while they wait to begin their asylum process in the U.S. or um, as well as those who have a process or want to start a process in Mexico. So we have seen that um, some actions um, have not been the most appropriate and that people continue to be forced to make decisions that are risky for their process and also for their lives. So we hope that the municipal and the state administrations 
will work together to create the necessary mechanisms to ensure a dignified state for migrants, the refugee and asylum uh, seekers communities. And we also are hoping that they can really strengthen those efforts that we already made and that we can push um, together better, um, better solutions for these needs. And I also think that it's really important by national agreements to be made to guarantee access to rights, like seeking asylum in the US. But it is extremely urgent that the Mexican government, especially the local government as Tijuana, um, to commit and create dignified conditions for uh, people that is uh, here in the border. And because we know that migration policies of the United States directly affect people that is waiting here. Um, so this has been, as um, my, my colleagues already said, um, got was worsened since March, 2020 with the closure of the border because of the pandemic, right? So this, this continue till today. And about the recommendations we present in the report um, are part of the listening exercises and the work we've had, uh, had with migrants, refugee and asylum seeking communities, uh, since each one of them, uh, according to their migratory project, their nationality, their skin color, their gender face, uh, complex situations, uh, similar but in conditions of vulnerability that are aggravated according to their characteristics. And so part of these um, accompaniment work that both organizations as Cation Breed Alliance and Espacio Migrante have uh, carried out during this time, uh, we address different areas as enforcement of human rights law currently legislated in Mexico, development of mechanisms and access routes to services, language justice, racial justice, and we also promote uh, collaborative work between organizations in solidarity with immigrants' rights in Mexico and in the United States. And among the main recommendations of the community that participated in the survey and in the focus groups um, is the need to create permanent route to, routes to access their human rights in Tijuana and that the authorities take into account different languages and to put an end to discriminatory and racist practices. In addition, from the Afro-descendant communities, racial justice is an urgency. Uh, they urge the elimination of arbitrary detention practices by the police and immigration authorities based on racial profiling, as well as the denial of access um, to services such as healthcare, as Pedro mentioned in the video, and also um, mental health, as April said. And some of the recommendations um, actually goes to documentation. You know, they want the Ministry of the Interior, the INM, uh, the Migratory National Institute, to provide transit visas or um, to expedite the provision of permanent residency and family unification bait visas. Um, and this is something that also um, a girl from the video said, right? And uh, they also urge Comar to accelerate the adjudications of refugee status. 
Um, and in this sense, they also want um, for the federal government to increase funding and staffing for Comar. Uh, here in Tijuana, the office of Comar was open in late 2018, but they actually got very few people working there. And there were um, hundreds of people that wanted to seek asylum. So there is a need to increase funding and staffing in, in Comar locally, in Tijuana. And also something that it was very interesting uh, for us is that um, the migrant, uh, the refugee and asylum seeking communities are not just only asking the government, but also the civil society organizations for help. As in the case of housing, they want us to invest in housing options beyond shelters, because as Paulina said, um, most of the people is not living in shelters, so they need to find uh, a short-term rentals and other affordable options. Um, as here in Tijuana is very expensive and most of the time people is charging in, in dollars where they should be charging in pesos. And this is something that is um, some, well, hard for people to, to manage. And also to create a bureau to monitor and report and inform migrants about landlords who discriminate on the basis of document status, nationality, race, or ethnicity. And um, something else is that they are wanting us to, to say that um, the US need to uh, ensure asylum as a right. And this is something that is not to be denied as uh, is a, a international human right. So uh, we wanna invite you all to review the full report and the recommendations as this is uh, the work, not only of our own, like the organizations, but it's actually the experience of the people living in Tijuana. And these recommendations compile the needs of the migrant, refugee and seeking asylum communities. Thank you. And that is a panel featuring scholar advocate community organizers who authored this latest report on our Remain in Mexico program and the human toll on folks stuck in Tijuana as a result. And joining me, we have Dr. Yael Shacker, Senior U.S. Advocate for Refugees International. And Doc, I just wanted you to maybe reflect here as we start this new year, as we record this uh, there were reports that the Biden administration has broken off talks, settlement talks with families separated by our country's immigration policies. And as we record this, we await what is essentially the restart of the Remain in Mexico program under the Biden administration. So, Dr. Yeltschecker, what is your advice for folks listening to this who do not support these policies, who want to see something change, especially as your report in this webinar demonstrates this significant human toll on folks stuck in Tijuana? Thanks so much. That's a that's a great question. And I think, you know, what we what we saw with the Biden administration is um, a lot of promises to reverse these policies, a lot of, you know, for the first or six months of the Biden administration, some movements to do just that. And then what we've seen since August is sort of a flip back into sort of not doing anything, not changing. And perhaps, as you mentioned, re-implementing um, re-implementing this program, just an imminent re-implementation of the Remain in Mexico program. And I, and I think the, the, the flip um, is political, right? It's because there's this perceived crisis at the border that's being really pushed. Um, there is some push by the 
federal courts, but also basically there's this sense in Washington that the Biden administration needs to be hard line, needs to continue these policies or else it will lose political support. Personally, I think that's a losing strategy. Um, there's a lot of sort of survey data indicating that the Biden administration is losing young people support, partly because it's not, you know, making keeping up those promises on immigration issues, like you mentioned, family separation, um, or you know, helping the families who were separated, um, making that good, amending that policy, you know, um, repairing that damage. Um, and certainly not in the re-implemented re-implementation of a Trump era program. So I think the message that actually this is not good politics, um, harsh immigration and border policy is actually not good politics. It would be wonderful if listeners really made that loud and clear. Like we do not, you know, t- wrote to their representatives, contacted the wrote op eds, wrote letters to the newspapers, make it public that this is actually not a winning political strategy for the Biden administration to be harsh on the border, right? Because that this is a, I think this is a political decision being made that by the Biden Biden administration, thinking that this is popular. Right. Like that. This is the way to keep support. Um, Maybe the maybe it's going for moderate support. But frankly, I don't think it's a winning political strategy. Certainly not a winning moral strategy, certainly an inhumane strategy. But even from a political perspective, think it's misguided. Uh, And so if folks could really voice that up, raise that up, uh, tell their representatives um, that they do not support this policy. That would be uh, right about it publicly, you know, the voice publicly um, that they do not support this. That would be wonderful. I mean, as soon as the Biden administration announced that, you know, this re-implementation of M- Remain in Mexico would start, um, several members of Congress, including powerful ones, um, um spoke out and said, we don't approve. Um, And so I think, um, you know, what we want are more members of Congress to do that, Um, more congressional pushback. So the more they hear from constituents, the better. And that is Dr. Yael Shacker, Senior U.S. Advocate for Refugees International. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the report and the webinar online where you can see it in total. We didn't have time to share everything, but I hope you enjoyed the clip we did have tonight. And my thanks to Dr. Angela Dunn, Salt Lake County Health Department, who earlier in the show explained her public health advisory issued earlier today and strongly encouraging all of us who live and work in Salt Lake County to engage in more precaution as we experience this post-holiday surge in COVID due to the Omicron variant. A link in tonight's show notes for Salt Lake County Health Department's testing and vaccination programs, folks. Please do your best to keep you and your loved ones, those you work with and play with, all healthy. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening to Radioactive. Have a great night.